0: Okay, I was going to introduce myself, but fine, you already know who I am. Um, I'm Brendan, I'm a student in training for ministry here. It's my honor to bring the message to you today. Um, We're in John chapter 9, and we're going through the whole thing. So, strap in, it's a big one. Um, I'll read that, and then I'll pray, and then we'll get started. John chapter 9, I'll give you a moment to find it in your Bibles. All right. As he went along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus. But this happened so the works of God might be displayed in him. As long as it is day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. And saying this, he spit on the ground and made some mud with the saliva and put it on the man's eyes. Go, he told him, and wash in the pool of Siloam. This word means sent. So the man went and washed and came home seeing. His neighbors and those who had formerly seen him begging asked, Is this the same man who used to sit and beg? Some claimed that he was. Others said, No, he only looks like him. But he himself insisted, I am the man. How then were your eyes opened, they asked. He replied, the man they called Jesus made some mud and put it on my eyes. He told me to go and wash, and, to, to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and then I could see. Where is this man, they asked him. I don't know, he said. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had been blind. Now the day on which Jesus had made the mud and opened the man's eyes was a Sabbath. Therefore the Pharisees also asked him how he had received his sight. He put mud on my eyes, the man replied, and I washed and now I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others asked, how can a sinner perform such signs? So they were divided. Then they turned again to the blind man. What have you to say about him? It was your eyes he opened. The man replied, he is a prophet. They still did not believe that he had been blind blind and received his sight until they sent for the man's parents. Is this your son, they asked? Is this the one you say was born blind? How is it that he can now see? We know he is our son, the parents answered, and we know he was born blind. But how he can see now or who opened his eyes, we don't know. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. His parents said this, was, said this because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders who had already decided that anyone who acknowledged Jesus was the Messiah would be put out of the synagogue. That was why his parents said, he is of age. Ask him. A second time they summoned the man who had been blind. Give glory to God by telling the truth, they said. We know this man is a sinner. He replied, whether he's a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I do know, I was blind, but now I see. Then they asked him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered, I've already told you and you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples too? (laughs) Then they hurled insults at him and said, you were this fellow's disciple we are disciples of Moses we know that God spoke to Moses as for this fellow we don't even know where he comes from the man answered now that is remarkable you don't know where he comes from yet he opened my eyes we know that God does not listen to sinners he listens to a godly person who does his will nobody ever heard of opening the eyes of a man born blind if this man were not from God he could do nothing to this they replied, you were steeped in sin at birth, how dare you lecture us? And they threw him out. Jesus heard that they had thrown him out, and when, they found, and when he found him, he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? Who is he, sir, the man asked, tell me so that I may believe in him. Jesus said, you have now seen him, in fact, he is the one speaking to you. Then The man said, Lord, I believe, and we worshipped him. Jesus said, for judgment I have come into this world so that the blind will see and those who see will become blind. Some Pharisees who were with him heard him say this and asked, what, are we blind to?" Jesus said, if you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin. But now that you claim you can see, your guilt remains. Let's pray. Father God, please open up your word to our hearts and open up our hearts to your word. In the name of your son, Jesus, amen. So John chapter 9, you will be shocked to learn, follows John chapter 8, which in turn follows from John chapter 7. And John chapters 7 through 10 are all part of Jesus' early ministry in Jerusalem specifically, the first time he goes up. He'll leave for Jordan after chapter 10 and then come back later on for the final part of his journey, but... Most commentators seem to feel like these chapters are all describing Jesus' activity on one day or maybe a few days. You might remember back in chapter 7, Jesus came up to Jerusalem for the Feast of Booths, a week-long festival to which Jesus chose to arrive fashionably late so that he could pop up in the middle of the festivities and tell everyone that he is the source of the living water that they needed. So this miracle seems to happen in the next few days as Jesus is the talk of the town and people are trying to figure out who he is and the Pharisees are looking for a good reason to kill him. So we get this account of Jesus healing a blind man in the first section in verses 1 through 12. Then this comedy of the Pharisees blundering around trying to figure out a reason to call it something other than a miracle up until verse 34. And finally, at the end of the chapter, the blind man, the Pharisees, the Jesus the Jesus, are all in the same scene. And Jesus blesses one and sasses the other. Now we start with Jesus coming across this blind man. And his disciples break into the discussion of one of the oldest topics known to man. Why is there suffering? And they start with the impression they've already narrowed it down to two choices. They know that the suffering is in the world because of sin, as a result of sin. But they want to know which Suffering is the result of which sin? So they ask Jesus, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus' response rolls them back a step. This man's blindness is not a result directly of his or anyone else's sin. He's blind because he was destined for Jesus to cure him and that the works of God would be displayed in him. These miracles illuminate the character of God and the sinfulness of man. And Jesus says that he is the light of the world. And as long as he's there, he's going to keep doing amazing miracles to bring glory to God. Then he heals the man in the weirdest way in a long career of healing blind people. Jesus' ministry to the blind is particularly interesting because he heals a fair few blind folks throughout the Gospels and keeps changing how he does it. Sometimes he tells them to see, sometimes he, something like scales falls from their eyes, and... One time he just spits on a guy. One time he touches a guy's eyes. One time he touches a guy's eyes twice because the first time he touched him, he felt that he was seeing trees walking around, like turning on an old TV and having to give it a good whack to get the reception right. But Jesus changes up the execution again here of this miracle, and as a result, no one can come after him and say that he knows some kind of magical spell to cure the blind or some kind of particular spiritual technique. The technique was different every time. The power of the miracle came from Jesus himself. And he gave those who followed him no way to miss that truth. So in this case, he spits, makes a small pile of mud, smushes it into the guy's eyes, and tells him to go wash in the pool of Siloam, the sacred waters at the wall of the city that the festival that was going on presently marched to every day. This is a busy time of year for that pool and Jesus makes sure that there is no way this miracle will be overlooked. By sending the man there, they'll see him. In the next scene, the bulk of the chapter, the Pharisees come on to the scene and they start interrogating this poor guy. They don't believe this is a miracle but they're caught trying to figure out how it's not one. On one hand, the healing is on the Sabbath and they decide that counts as work and because God doesn't work through sin and it's a sin to work on the Sabbath, then it can't be a miracle. On the other hand, it really looks like a miracle. This guy is apparently born blind and now he can see. So they drag in this guy's parents into the picture to ask them as well, is your son blind? If he's so blind, why is he not blind? Explain yourselves. They duck the question because they know that this is a miracle. They understand that Jesus is the Messiah, but they know a witch hunt when they see one. And they wiggle around it. He's a grown man. He used to be blind. Now he's not. If you want more details, ask him. And they do ask him quite pointedly. (laughs) Give glory to God by telling the truth. We know this man is a sinner. I love this blind man, by the way, because he's so chipper in the face of his interrogation. Whether he's a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I do know, I was blind, but now I see. Then they ask, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? I already told you. You didn't listen. Why? You want to hear it again? Do you want to be his disciples too? (laughs) John records that they hurled insults at him. Those insults are not specifically recorded. I imagine they're fairly special. (laughs) And said, hey, you were this fellow's disciple. We are disciples of a little guy called Moses. And uh, we knew that God spoke to Moses, but we don't know about this guy. We don't even know where he's coming from. And our peppy once blind friend continues to miss the insult somehow and replies, well, that is remarkable. You don't know where he's coming from, but he opened my eyes. So they throw him out of the synagogue. It was steeped in sin at birth. How dare you lecture us, they say. They make the same mistake the disciples made at the start of the chapter, assuming that blindness from birth is some kind of special marker of extra sin. But they don't learn any lesson from the miracle. Or they encounter with Jesus in the next scene. Jesus finds the once blind man after he's been thrown out and puts his face to the voice the blind man heard before. The blind man worships him on the spot. Jesus says, for judgment I have come into this world so that the blind will see and those who see will become blind. The Pharisees, as if they're afraid to let something be said without snarking about it, sarcastically interject, what are we blind to? But the truth is they are disciples of Moses. And in the previous chapters, back in chapter 7, Jesus reminded them that the scriptures of Moses are talking about him. So while they see and they have access to true spiritual knowledge, they're displaying their spiritual ignorance by refusing to believe it. And so they become spiritually blind. The blind man has an excuse. He was genuinely ignorant of who the Son of Man was until Jesus clarified it for him. But Jesus says, if you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin. But now that you claim you can see, your guilt remains. The Son of Man was right in front of their face, and they chose not to see him. Confronted by the light of the world, the Pharisees close their eyes and they become blind. Now, this is a reliable formula for Jesus' miracles. Jesus does a miraculous thing, Pharisees give him grief. Jesus dismisses their complaints. Pharisees become a little bit more eager to kill Jesus. But this particular miracle has a lot to teach. And the example of this blind man's faith is an image of how we should respond to Jesus' work in our lives. I've had the recent pleasure, through compulsory assessment, at Theological College, of becoming acquainted with what theologians call the Wesleyan quadrilateral, which I know what you're thinking sounds like a painful professional wrestling maneuver. But it's not. The quadrilateral is named after John Wesley. is a collection of four sources of, of information and wisdom that a person can use to make judgments about their life, about spiritual truths, about the right behaviors to take. It's four things. Scripture, tradition, reason, and experience. Scripture, obviously, the word of God as our first and final authority. The Bible describes God and what following God looks like. Tradition means the 2,000 years of Christians who came before us and how they've contributed to what we know and believe. Reason our God-given capacity to understand the world around us with our minds. And experience as we actually go through a spiritual transformation and live different lives actually experiencing the grace of God and the truth of being changed believers. Now Wesley's notion that these four things interact was that Scripture is our source of all authority on spiritual matters and how to live. Tradition and reason are kind of helpful aids for interpreting that when something becomes or seems unclear. For example, the Bible has no teaching on internet gambling. The idea that I could go home right now and play at a high-stakes game of Texas Hold'em with an alpaca farmer in Peru is not something the Apostle Paul considered. But the Bible does have a lot to say about being wise with the money that we have. That God has given us. And I can reasonably apply that to internet gambling. And Christians over the past 2,000 years have been pretty hostile to gambling in general. So I need a pretty compelling reason to decide they were all wrong and I was right. But experience is also important. The claim that Jesus makes is that he will make us new creations. That he will come and he will change who we are, how we think, when we come to him that our sinful hearts will be altered and we will want different things. The whole trajectory of our life will be changed from being opposed to God and living for ourselves to living for God and being opposed to ourselves. We are supposed to experience the truth of obeying God and conflicting with our sinful natures for his sake. That experience is supposed to enrich and empower our lives as followers of God. And it's meant to be practical proof to people around us that the things that the scripture claims are true. So what we need and what this chapter and this once blind man show us is the difference between blind faith and the blind man's faith. There's a sad truth that Wesley's idea of experience is life-changing and important. In uh, recent years, the last 100 years, sort of recent has been taken and overinflated in some places by some Christians, lifted above Scripture and above everything else. This idea that this kind of blind faith that doesn't need to make sense, you don't need to see it, you don't need to to read about it, you just need to feel it and no one can teach it to you. You just have to believe really hard and then you've got that real faith. You've got to close your eyes and believe blindly that you're going to experience God today and if you believe hard enough, God will reward that faith. Or that if I have a sick loved one and I just need to declare that God will supernaturally heal him. And if it doesn't work, it is because I did not have enough faith. That is blind faith. But that's not the picture that scripture gives us of how we should act. Certainly Jesus seems to reward faith on an individual basis. We have a story in Matthew 9.20 of the woman suffering bleeding. Who creeps up on Jesus and touches his robe. And he tells her, your faith has made you whole. And there are other miracles like that one. And what they teach us is that we can have faith, like she did, that God will do the things he promised to do. And that he will execute his plan, which in some cases does involve miraculously healing. What it does not teach us is that God will do what what we tell him to do if we declare it and believe hard enough that he will. Look at the blind man from this passage. He doesn't have any faith that he will be healed. His faith begins with the healing. His first words recorded that we get are after he's already been healed. People ask if he's the guy who used to be blind, and he says, I'm that man. He doesn't express any faith that he will be healed. His first interaction with Christ is to have a mud pie mashed into his face by the Son of God. The disciples walk by him, and Jesus is asked by them, So is this his fault or his parents' fault? And Jesus says, no, watch this. Now go wash that off. (laughs) Well, I have to now. Did you notice that Jesus doesn't say your faith has made you whole? He doesn't even tell the guy he's been healed. He just says, Go wash yourself. This guy doesn't even know he's been healed until he's fumbled his way across the city and washed. And only then, long after Jesus and his disciples have moved on, does he understand something supernatural has happened. And he had encountered the living God. His faith begins then as a reaction because he experienced the action of God in his life. The key is in verse 25 there. One thing I do know, I was blind, but now I see the shortest testimony of all time. One thing I do know, I was blind, but now I see. And that needs to be our testimony too. One thing I know, I was spiritually blind, but now I see. I lived for myself, but now I don't. I was a hopeless sinner, now I'm not. My life was empty, now it's full. The best witness we can provide for Christ as a proof of the gospel's changing power is to experience that changed life personally and be prepared to testify about it. It's the best, most effective way to reach the people closest to us. In this chapter, we've got three groups of people who react to this miracle. We've the Pharisees who are not buying it. Are you the guy? Were you really blind? How do he do it? Do you know this guy? How'd this happen? We either don't think it's true, or if it's true, we don't think it's from God. Then we've got his neighbors and the people who have seen him begging. Back in verse 8, and they're skeptical, but some of them believe it. Are you the blind man? I'm the man. Are you blind? Apparently not. Why not? Miraculous mud pie from Jesus. Hmm. Then his parents, who know he was blind, and they know he's not anymore. And they know for sure this was a miracle done by God's Messiah. The closer people get to the blind man, the more they know him, the more powerful this miracle is to them. We have his parents from verse 22 and they can tell that Jesus was the Messiah from this action and we can tell they knew because it tells us. They didn't want to be thrown out of the synagogue so they dodged the question when they were asked but at some point during their day, their son came to them and saw them for the first time. He had never seen them before in his life. Never. All he knew was their voices and the smell of their clothes. A the feel of their hands as they taught him to walk and helped him when he stumbled over and over again. We're not told that he had brothers or sisters. The Pharisees don't interrogate anyone like that, so it stands to reason that he's probably their only child. And he must have been the joy of their life when he was first born because... This is the first century, folks. It's a brutal age. And in that time, children were not a lifestyle choice. They were a necessity. You needed children. If you did not have children, no one would look after you when you got old. You had to look after yourself and then you wouldn't be able to. And then you were entirely at the mercy of your neighbors and strangers. So this baby meant not just that they had made a little person, that their futures were secure. God had blessed them With a life that was secure. They could not, well, they could grow old in peace now because they knew he'd look after them when they grow up, or when he grew up. But like they look after their parents, they expect that from him. But at some point, they notice that his eyes are always tracking past them. He doesn't respond to movement or shifting light, and they realize he can't see. He'll never see their faces they're going to have to look after him until the day they drop dead. And shortly after, he'll probably follow because no family in their right mind will marry a daughter to a husband who can't provide, who can't look after his elders, who can't see, And so he'll certainly have no kids of his own. So the parents raise their blind son and he lives in shame, contributing the best he can by begging on the street every day trying to pay back a little bit to his parents for the sacrifices they've made in raising him. Then one day he's just in the right place at the right time, begging as he normally does. And he hears these people approaching, talking about him to a man they call Jesus. And they're asking if the blindness that he has is something he brought on himself or if it's really his parents' fault for being such screw-ups that they got this burdensome, blind child as God's way of kicking them in the teeth for being sinners. And he must have been asking himself that same question every day of his life. How could I possibly deserve this? What did they do that this happened to me? And then he hears Jesus say, neither this man nor his parents sinned, but this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. And then he gives him his sight for the first time in his life. And he comes out of that water in the pool of Siloam and he can see, and I wish we had more details on what it was like for this guy. What was the first thing he saw? His own hands? Did he run straight home? How long did he just stand on the spot turning around and looking at Jerusalem and seeing colors for the first time, touching trees and walls and dirt and connecting the fields to what things look like? How long did he stare at his own reflection in the water? What did he say to his parents when he first saw them? All they'd ever known of their boy from the day he was born until this day was dependence and need and the awful feeling that maybe this was a punishment from God for something they did. Until he comes home and he sees his mother's eyes for the first time. And she sees him looking at her for the first time. And he tells her, it's not your fault. I was blind so that the works of God could be displayed in me. And his mother and his father know for certain for the first time in their life that God cares for them. And they know that the man named Jesus is God's son and the Messiah. And they know that their son, if he had not been born blind, they might not have believed it. Physical blindness is not the problem with this world. The problem is spiritual blindness. People are unable to see the God to whom they are accountable and the God who saves them. The blindness that is cured here is a living physical metaphor for sin, like leprosy and like death. We are dead in sin, we are unclean and blind in sin. And it is the work of God through Jesus Christ to come down into that pit of sin and blindness, where he says, I am the light of the world and burns that darkness away. That is the grace of God. That's when our faith starts. We can't earn it any more than a dead man can come alive under his own power or a blind man can make himself seen. But Jesus can raise the dead and give sight to the blind. And when Jesus illuminates our sinful life with the light of his grace... Our faith begins and we repent and we call him Lord and Savior. And then our sin is taken away, just like that. We are no longer a slave to it. We're empowered to live changed lives because our experience of God's saving grace changes us. It is different to be saved. And with that comes the incredible freedom of knowing that all our sinful habits, all our greed, all our selfishness, are not just broken, worthless parts of us. Christ forgives our sins and then empowers us to overcome our sinful behaviors through the Holy Spirit so that we don't live like sinners but like followers of Christ. So that that changed life will be a display of the works of God. And the people who don't know you, when they see this, they'll probably think you're a good person but they won't believe God had anything to do with it. And the people who know you a little bit might give it a bit of credence that something unusual has happened to you, you make your life the way it is. But if you follow Jesus and you keep on pursuing him and the quality of your character keeps improving to be more and more Christ-like, then the people closest to you who know your flaws will witness them vanishing. And the people closest to you might be people who worship a different God or who don't worship a God at all. And they might ask questions like, how can you follow the teachings of a 2,000-year-old book? Or why should I believe in Jesus rather than Buddha or Muhammad? But if you're living with that blind man's faith, you can offer the best testimony you could hope for. I was a sinner, then he changed me. I was blind, now I see. Let's pray. Father God, you sent your son into this world to give us new life, to be the light of the world, to illuminate and wash away our sin. Thank you. Help us to live in the light of your gospel and be energized by our experience of following you as your children. Help us have that faith that recognizes your work in our lives. And may our lives display your work in the world, to those you put before us. In Jesus' name, amen.